0: Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'm always excited to hear Brother Green. I have never been disappointed any time that I've ever heard him preach. I have felt stronger, and we're going to feel that way today. Brother Green, come and preach the word. We appreciate you. Praise the Lord, everybody. Hey, Amen. What an honor to be with you today and the privilege to feel the presence of the Holy Ghost here. I love going to church, but uh, there's something different about going to church and feeling the presence of God. <laughs> Every time that I've gone to some churches, it's not been the case, but I'm so thankful that as we worship today, his presence were here That he spoke to us specifically through tongues and interpretation of tongues and told us that he loves us. And that he wants us to love him. You know, when we are in individual relationship, as individuals with God, we're his children. But when we come together, all of his children come together, we become his bride. And the closeness and the intimacy of a bride can only be felt when they all come together. Now you have a tremendous intimacy as a child father relationship, but there's something special about that bride relationship. And that's the opportunity we have when we come together. We're now his bride and we can feel that strength of how much he loves us. I'm going to direct your attention to the gospel of John chapter eight. Would you like to stand one more time? We often stand as we read the text just as a sign of respect and reverence for the anointed word of God. One more time, I'd like to say congratulations to my friend, Bishop Kylie and Lady Kylie. Love them so much. And uh, what a privilege and honor it has been for me to be here, my privilege. And uh, love this church also. So good to be with so many of you that we've become very close to. We love and appreciate you very much. John chapter 8, verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto Jesus a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee go and sin no more now that last statement is almost like a no duh statement right when the goodness and mercy of God comes to us there should be bishop there should be gratitude there should be thankfulness that response from us should be that we don't leave and go back the same way we were So mercy and grace, if you're thankful for what he has done in your life, it will cause a change and a difference in the way you live. I'm going to preach from this very familiar scripture what has been a revelation to me, and I trust will be a revelation to you today. So don't expect a traditional message from here. But I also want you to be in prayer that the gift of revelation would operate for you. And in you today, so that we can understand what the Spirit wants to say to us, His bride. God bless you today, preaching witnesses. Witnesses, you may be seated. (laughs) At first blush, at, at first glance... This looks to be maybe the greatest act of mercy and grace recorded in human history. But I am always looking, when I'm reading John, a little further than just the surface. John not only wrote the gospel that we read our text from, but he also wrote three epistles. First John, second John, and third John. He's also the writer of the last book in your New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But John, when we speak of him, we call his ministry by saying he was John the Revelator. Good, good. The reason is more than just that he wrote the book of Revelation, but it speaks about his gifting, his calling, his ministry. He had a gift of revelation. Obviously, to be able to receive from God and to write the revelation of Jesus Christ, he had to have a gift of revelation. But we see that sprinkled not just through the last book of the New Testament, but in his epistles, it is alive with revelation for us today and in his Gospels. So when I'm reading John, I'm studying and trying to find out what is beneath the surface that if I'm hungry to know, I can see Jesus Christ revealed in a deeper dimension if I will position myself to receive it. And absolutely, this passage is very much revelatory. Now, I think when we look at this passage, traditionally there are probably two questions that immediately we, we would ask. And the first question is probably this. Well, what in the world did Jesus write on the ground, right? And theologians and preachers have surmised and preached for generations about different ideas, and I appreciate all of their ideas. But your opinion is as good as any theologian's. Because we don't know the answer. it's not spoken to us in the word of God. Some have said and preached that Jesus obviously wrote the sins of the very scribes and Pharisees, the ones that had come with judgmental attitude. Jesus was writing down their mistakes. That's, that's a good guess. Others have said he must have wrote this in the ground: Where is the man? Because if she's caught in the very act of adultery, it takes two to tango, right? Or even where is the other woman? Who knows? But I look in this scripture and find that if God so wanted us to know what was written, he'd have told us. So for me, it's not what he wrote, but it's his actions. And so my personal belief is this. I don't think he wrote anything. In the context, we find that he's ignoring them. It's like he's turning his back to them as they're pressing him, give us an answer, give us an answer. He's just got his back to them, and he just stoops down and writes on the ground as though he heard them not. He's ignoring them, and they're pressing him for an answer. I think Jesus is doodling, (laughs) absentmindedly doing whatever. The other question that traditionally we must answer from this text is this. Can Jesus arbitrarily decide that law is not as important as mercy and just ignore law here so that he can show mercy? Can Jesus just decide that he doesn't have to be righteous by the law because perhaps grace perhaps is a higher law? What is happening here? This must be answered today because our world is confused about who Jesus is. If you ask most surface Christians, or even those that would not say they're a Christian but have an idea of what Christianity is, if you ask them what is God, most would say God is love, which means he's mercy, he's grace, he's forgiving. And that is absolutely true. But God is not just love. He is also righteous. He is also holy. He is also perfect. So that demands to be answered here. As I read the text, hopefully there were words that leapt out to you. I want you to see these words again. Words like law, accuse, convicted, condemn, condemn. The past of condemned, condemned, accusers. These are all words that are in the text and it immediately should make us understand this is courtroom verbiage. This is legal terminology. The words that are being spoken here are words that you would talk about if you were in court or you were talking about a legal matter. So John the Revelator is trying to let us see that this is not just a great story of mercy and grace. Yes, it is, but it's deeper than that. There's revelation here. There's a legal binding operation that is happening here. So let's set the scene. It is a courtroom scene. And these scribes and Pharisees bring one, allegedly, caught in the very act of adultery. And when they bring her to Jesus, they call Jesus master. Now, in this particular place, they're not speaking of him as a master, servant, master. But they're speaking him as one that has mastered the law, master of the word. Master of the Old Testament as we would understand their thinking. So they are speaking to him as one that we would call today a a lawyer or an attorney or in particular a judge. One that has studied and knows the law. In fact, judge is a perfect terminology in our uh, words today because they immediately put him behind the judge's desk. When they say, this woman put in the midst, she's brought to court, she's on trial, she's standing in front of everybody to be judged. And they put Jesus behind the judge's desk and say, what do you say? They demand that she will be judged by the law of God given by Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they declare that this is the law they're living by and Jesus must judge this woman by this law but in reality they have already been their judge and jury for they have decided she's guilty and she should be taken out and stoned. the scripture tells us they're not just trying to condemn her they are tempting jesus because in their minds he has one of two choices and either choice he makes is going to destroy his ministry they've got him backed into a corner They think he can choose one or the other, choose grace or choose law. And whichever way he goes, it destroys his ministry. This is the situation they think they have him in. They believe that if he chooses law and he says, You're right, the law of Moses does say that, let's take her out right now, pick up stones and take her life, then they're going to say to him, What value is the Beatitudes? What is all this stuff you're teaching about loving your neighbor and mercy and grace and kindness? Because you believe the law just like we do. So you've got no new commandment to come and preach. No one should listen to what you have to say because you are bound by the law just like we are. And if he chooses the other way and he's going to say, you know what? Let's show mercy today. That's what I judge, mercy. Then they're going to say, well, you are lawless. Because if you do not follow the law, then you have no righteousness that you are unlawful. And therefore, nobody should listen to you. Nobody should follow you because you have no righteousness within you. So, they think they have him backed into a corner. But the Pharisees and the scribes don't have a revelation that John is trying to let us see here. Truth can stand up to every temptation. Are you thankful for truth? Truth can stand up to every trial. Truth is the answer for every generation, even this generation. Truth is the answer for every situation. It's relative to everything that we go through. What is truth? In this same gospel, John 17 and 17 makes it clear what truth is. Thy word is truth oh god so you want to know what is relevant to this generation it's the word of god if you want to know how to have church it's in the word of god you want to know who jesus is it's in the word of god you want to know what is right it's in the word of god and it is relevant to every generation even ours because thy word is truth it is the answer to every circumstance you find yourself in the word of god is truth but then in the same gospel John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we see the gospel of John making two infallible statements. John 17, 17, the word is truth. John 14 and 6, Jesus is truth. So which one is right? And the answer is yes. (laughs) This is why John begins the foundation of his gospel in John chapter one, verse one, within the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You cannot separate God from his word. They are one and the same. Yeah. And here's Revelation, drop down just a few verses to John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word, that was in the beginning with God, and the Word was made flesh. That's when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem's manger, that God, the Word, became flesh, Continuing verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Look at this revelation, full of grace and truth. There's a phenomena that happened when Jesus Christ was born that no longer did you have to have the law or Mercy, now you could have both mercy and the law, both truth and righteousness, both grace and the truth. These are all combined in Jesus Christ. In fact, the psalmist began to prophesy of this in Psalms 85 and 10 when he looked forward to the time of Christ. And he said there will be a prophetic moment when Christ will come and mercy and truth will meet together righteousness and peace will kiss each other. He said there's a phenomena that will happen where Christ will be revealed to us in a great dimension that he's not just law and he's not just truth, but he's also mercy and he's also grace, full of grace and truth. So let's look at this courtroom scene. They brought this woman, put her in the midst She's standing before the judge's desk. They've demanded that he judge her. And Jesus makes this action and motion. He dismisses himself from the judge's desk. And the scripture says that he stooped down. I am saying today in parallel that this position of stooping down is getting off the place of judging her and stooping down even to the defender's lawyer table to fight for her. Let me prove this to you. John 12 and 47, again, the same gospel. Jesus makes clear his ministry. He said, I came not to judge, but to save. And in the ministry of Christ in the gospels, we see him over and over not judging individuals, but trying by the law to justly give mercy and to justly give grace. So his position then and his position now. Can I tell you, in this place today, his spirit is here, but he is not here to judge you. He is here to save you. John 3, 16 declares this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to judge you, but he came to save you. Yeah qualification of John twelve forty seven. 47 he didn't come to judge but to save is John 12 and 48 the word that I have spoken will judge you in the last day there will come a time when every man great and small will stand before that great great white throne judgment at the end of days and the books will be opened and every man will be judged according to their actions but not today hmm. Today it's about mercy and grace and him finding some way to fight for you to try to save you here today. So Jesus has, as I have declared, dismissed himself from judging her and he's stooping down in an action that speaks about not a power and authority to judge but one rather that will get on their level and he is doodling as I have spoken to you. He's Writing in the ground. Some have asked why on the temple floor was there enough dust uh, for him to write on the ground. That's, that's another message altogether. And he is ignoring them and they are pressing him for an answer. What's your judgment? Are you going to say law or are you going to say grace? Are you going to say stone her or are you going to somehow? We want to know what you say because that's going to destroy your ministry. And as they keep pressing him, finally he gets up to his feet. And as a defense attorney, he gives his opening and his closing statement with one sentence. My God, if our lawyers were half that smart today. He makes one statement that turns the very tide of this courtroom. And this is what he declares. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And while we understand that these are words of mercy, they're much deeper than that. He's not just saying, come on, guys, everybody has made mistakes. Why don't you show mercy today? It's it's deeper than that. Because he is quoting directly from the law of Moses. He's gone directly back to the Pentateuch, in particular, Exodus Leviticus, And he is speaking the law, the very law that they demanded that he would use. And he begins to speak this law so that they can hear. And if I could give you understanding, he basically says, he that's not missing the mark. Without sin, that word sin there means missing the mark. If you're here and you're not missing the mark in this courtroom is what he's saying. If you're here as a witness and you're not missing the mark, if you're here without sin, then go ahead and exact the law take up stones, take her life. Because it is absolutely true what they have said. It is true that there is a commandment. Even of the Ten Commandments, the seventh law declares, thou shalt not commit adultery. It does. Leviticus 20.10, going back to the law of Moses, declares that for every sin, including adultery... That there must be a penalty of being put to death. So even the actions of what they have said the law should do is right. Moses' law declares this in Deuteronomy 17 and 6. That for sins worthy of death, there must be two or three eyewitnesses. They understand this. They're understanding the law of Moses. They know that if this woman is going to die because she had committed adultery, there had to be two or three eyewitnesses. That's what they're there doing. Deuteronomy 17 and 7, and this is what Jesus quoted, declares that the witnesses are to be the first ones to pick up stones and to put to death the guilty. Now, that's a deeper level of witnessing. Now, our founding fathers, when they uh, began the writing of our civil and our judicial laws here in America, uh, thankful, very thankful that they used principles from the word of God. But there are some laws that have become degraded or watered down over the years. And one of them is this law of the witness. Because in our courts today, if you outright lie on the stand, if you swear before God and your hand on the Bible to tell the truth, and then you perjure yourself in trial, you will legally receive a judgment, usually a slap on the hand. Many times the judge will just Give you a hard time with his words. Other times, in high-profile cases, you might spend a night in prison, maybe even a few. You could be fined several thousands of dollars, but mostly what happens in our court system today is if you perjure yourself on trial, it's there's not much judgment for that. You lie in court, there's not much judgment for that. However,. You had to be so sure in Moses' law that when you testified of an individual that if they're convicted will go to death, then you had to be so sure that you eyewitnessed that that you had to be willing to flip the switch on the electric chair when they're convicted. You, the witness, would have to do that. You would have to be so sure of what you saw and so sure that you wanted the law to be exacted that you would have to pick up stones and stone this woman or put the key in the prison bars never to see society again. You had to be that sure as a witness. But the law of the witness even went beyond that. For in Deuteronomy 19 and 19, this is what is spoken about, false witnesses. False witnesses should receive the same death penalty that they wish to put upon the one they witness against falsely. That's pretty strong. Now look at the case. If you witnessed that someone had got caught in adultery according to the law of Moses, that they should be put to death, and you lied, when they are not convicted, you as a false witness now be on trial for the same penalty of death. Because you tried to kill them, you witnessed falsely, now you are in trouble. This is what we know about these scribes and Pharisees. Jesus had the hardest problems with them. He's speaking to them that you look good on the outside. Man, you look like a Christian on the outside. You look holy and righteous on the outside. But inside, you just, you have nothing. You're full of, he said it this way, you're a whitened sepulcher or a freshly painted grave. But inside, you're full of dead men bones. Everything that you have religious-wise is on the outside. It's the way you look. It's where you go, where you don't go. It's what you say, what you don't say. It has nothing to do with a heart that loves the law and that loves things of God. In fact, they believe this too. It's why they made books and volumes of what they could do and what they couldn't do, where they could go and what they couldn't go. By their own religion, if they saw somebody sinning, they became dirty or unclean. By their own teachings, if they had witnessed a very act of adultery, they themselves would be unclean and unholy. So from what we know by the unrighteousness of what we see of true unrighteousness that Jesus has revealed to the scribes and Pharisees, and also because of what Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, if you're without sin, throw the first stone, we understand this. There's no way these scribes and Pharisees were actually someplace to see the actual act of immorality happen. They would not be caught dead watching some action of sin like this. They would not be in a place of ill repute. But obviously, they are saying what somebody else said, hearsay. They are just assuming that everybody knows her reputation. They don't think that their witness will be called into question So it's obvious to me that Jesus used this quotation because they're not true eyewitnesses. And Jesus, who knows these things of these hearts, of these spirits, speaks to them according to the law and says, if you're here and you have righteous in this court, you're not false witness, then go ahead and exact the law. Pick up stones and take your life. All of a sudden, the courtroom has shifted because Jesus ain't on trial anymore. And that woman is not on trial anymore. But these false witnesses are in trouble because according to the law that they're demanding, he judged them by. They are false witnesses that should be taken out in stone. But I want you to see the actions of Jesus. He doesn't get back behind the judge's desk and bang his gavel and start wearing them out. No, he stoops down again. He stooped down to fight for her and now he stoops down to fight for them when they realize they're in trouble and they need help. And he waits and waits and waits because he's ignoring their testimony. And when they begin to realize we're in trouble... If he doesn't let us recant our testimony, we're going to be taken out in stone according to the law of Moses. If he doesn't let us retract our statement, we are in trouble. And as Jesus just let their words hang there and then listen to what the law of Moses said, the scripture says they're convicted by their own conscience. And from the eldest, the one who probably knew the law, the greatest realized that if he's not going to make us Stand up to our testimony. We have opportunity to recant and to retract. Then we're just going to slip out of this courtroom right now and say that there wasn't any testimony that we're putting up for court. And from the eldest to the last, they left realizing mercy and grace had been shown to them. And when there was none there, and only the woman standing in the midst, Jesus lifts up himself Speaks to the woman, then he makes this declaration. I will not condemn you. Go and sin no more. But this powerful law of witness is not just an Old Testament law. It's a God law. It's a kingdom law. That's why you see it quoted four or five times in the New Testament. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. This is a kingdom law, that there is an establishment, there is a legally binding action that happens in heaven's court in the mouth of two or three spirit-filled eyewitnesses. In fact, it's the same legal document contract that's happening when the Lord says that whatever is bound in heaven will be bound on earth. What's ever loosed in heaven will be loosed on earth and vice versa. It's the loosing of legal properties and legal procedures, courtroom happenings that become bound in the church and bound even in heaven by the words that we speak, powered by the Holy Ghost. In fact, you'll find the power of this witness as well. Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, for by your words you shall be justified And by your words you shall be condemned. The law of the testimony is so powerful. So Jesus is not just arbitrarily saying, I'm not going to act on the law, I'm going to act on grace. He's reaching back to the law of the true eyewitnesses. And he declares this, that even before the law was founded, even before the earth was founded, there was a Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So he's reaching back to the Old Testament law and even before. And he's saying there's a propitiation there's a lamb that's going to take the price of the adultery you have committed there's a lamb of God that will become the sins of the world and he reaches back to the Old Testament law so that he can be righteous he's also reaching forward to a few months in time he's not bound by time to Calvary where he the lamb of God would hang between heaven and earth and he would declare I'm thirsty and the sins of the world all that happened to that time and even all that has happened in our lives would be placed upon him and he's making this lawful declaration by the law I'm finding a witness and I declare that there's one that has paid the price for you so therefore the lamb can take your sins and you can go without condemnation however before he makes that statement he speaks to her in such a way that demands that she also testifies Woman, where are those unaccusers that no man condemned thee? She has to testify because we have established that the word and Jesus are one and the same. Not two witnesses. That's one witness. So there needs to be one more witness because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word becomes legally binding or established. So he needs her testimony in this court. And when she begins to answer, she says, there's no man to condemn me. But the last word she says is a powerful testimony when she simply says, no man, Lord. That's not just a term of endearment. That's not just calling him something that everybody else calls him. But she's saying, I accept your lordship in my life. Therefore, I submit myself to the law of God that declares that even before the world was formed, a Lamb of God. I submit myself to your words and to your prophecy that you will die on Calvary's hill for me. And because you said you're an eyewitness of the Lamb of God, I believe it and I declare I receive that same Lamb that can be a propitiation or pay the price for me. And therefore, in the mouth of two witnesses, he can say to her legally, I'm not going to condemn you because I have shown you mercy and you also testified that you believe that. That's your eyewitness of what you believe. And so in the mouth of two witnesses, every word shall be established. But this is not just a beautiful story of mercy and grace that legally happens in the, Old, in the New Testament. This is a microcosm of everything that the new covenant is. Because what Jesus came to do is to legally purchase the rights to our souls in our life. And we choose what we believe. And we testify to what we believe. And our testimony becomes legally binding in the court of heaven bound in heaven and bound on earth. That's what New Testament is all about why you're going to see words like justified righteous these are legal terms that talk about the price that Jesus paid and because he paid it we have the opportunity to be legally set free from our sins and mistakes but there is a witness that is demanded of us when Paul talks in Romans 10 he makes this statement that if you believe in your heart, you have to confess with your mouth, and that's how the process of salvation begins to happen in your life, right? Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Indeed, we, we have what a lot of the Christian world today would call a sinner's prayer. And it goes something like this. Forgive me if I'm butchering a little bit, but it goes something like this, that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I accept Him and receive Him as Lord and Savior of my life. Something like that. Well, that is a powerful statement in the courtrooms of heaven and even in this place today if it's a true eyewitness. Let let, let me show you what's happening. Bishop, would you stand with me? If, If I say today... That I believe in this man. We, we all know what that means. We, we know what that means. I, I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying, oh, I believe Bishop Richard Kiley exists. Duh. Right? I, I'm not even saying that I believe he's of this church and he's moving into that tremendous bishop role. And I, I, I'm not even saying who he is. But if I tell you, I believe in that man. And I do. I believe in this man. What I'm telling you is this, and you know it. I believe in what this man lives for. I believe in this man's conversation, what he talks about. I believe in what he lived for, and I believe in what he died for. So if I make the confession, if I say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not saying I believe he existed. Atheists believe he existed. It's in our history books. But what I'm saying if I truly confess I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is I believe in who he is. I believe in his word that cannot be separated from who he is. I believe in what he lived for and I believe in what he died for. So for me to say I believe in Jesus Christ, I have to accept that whole word of God and say I believe in his words. I believe in what he lived for and what he died for. So... The confession is not just making a statement. You can go to a courtroom in North America today and sit there in the courtroom and believe something and know it in your heart. And it has no legal bounding at all until you testify. And once you open your mouth and speak, then there's legal procedures that are happening. Because you believe in your heart and you're confessing with your mouth. Even in this place today, this is not just a church service. It's a, it's a heavenly courtroom where souls have come to be judged. And every time you come to a church service, and I'm closing, you can believe that your prosecuting attorney is coming with you. Revelation calls him the enemy of your soul. He's an accuser of the brother. And we see the picture of him accusing just like he went before heaven and God and accused Job. Job doesn't deserve any blessing. Job doesn't deserve any goodness, any favor. He's only serving you because you're good to him. He doesn't deserve so. And the enemy, the prosecuting attorney, Satan, is accusing you the whole time you come into the church. You don't deserve any miracles today. Look at how you've lived this week. You don't deserve healing because you're not worthy. You've been caught in the very act of failure, mistakes. And so you and your prosecuting attorney is come before heaven and saying, they don't deserve any blessing today. But as court goes on, church goes on, you begin to hear the word of the law sung about what an awesome God he is. That's the law. That's the New Testament law. How he paid a price for us, that he loves us. He wants to be close to us. And you're hearing the law sung in this courtroom. And then the preacher gets up and preaches the specific law that God has sent them here to make legal judgment in the courtroom. But then what we call an altar service is your chance to testify. Because it doesn't matter how much you believe it. You've got to choose what report you'll believe. Isaiah 53 begins to give this to us plain. The prophet begins his prophecy with this statement. He said, ain't nobody gonna believe this. (laughs) Who hath believed our report, right? Just a little bit of, translation in time because when he begins to talk about this phenomenon in history when grace will kiss righteousness he said this phenomena will come with sorrow Jesus the Christ will be a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. We're going to hide our faces from him. The only way we'll esteem him if he's stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, he's going to be wounded and bruised, and all these things. And he said, But this is the phenomena. But this first verse is very important. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord speaks about the power of God. Who's going to see the power of God? It answers back to the first statement whoever believes the report. If you can believe the report, then you can see the power of God reveal. So this is what happens. Here's the courtroom. You come to church. The prosecuting attorney is telling you and everybody around you trying to condemn you. Sometimes your own heart will try to bring condemnation to you, Romans says. And then you hear the word of God preached. You hear the law spoken. And now you have to make a decision. What will you believe? So you have to do this process. You have to look into your own heart and be a true eyewitness. What do I believe? Do I really believe that a true God loved me so much that he went to Bethlehem's manger, lived 33 and a half short years, went to Calvary and took my sin? Do I really, can I look into my heart and really see that I believe that? And if I do believe that, then I want to make a confession. I believe also that you did that because you love me. I don't deserve it but you love me. And because you love me, I'm saying I believe that report of the word and I'm the second eyewitness of this account and therefore there's legal binding purpose for you to begin your journey of salvation. You have a legal right to salvation. That's why if you believe, you can be saved. If you believe not, you're already condemned. This is what the scripture says, how powerful your testimony is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. This is why there's life and death in your tongue. Because what you speak, your confession is your testimony. And your testimony in this legal courtroom determines what will legally be binding for your life. Now real quickly... Isaiah 53 begins to tell us all the way down to verse 4 and 5 that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. the chastisement for our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. If you are a child of covenant, child of God, you have a legal right to healing. Now let me prove this to you real quickly in just two minutes. When Jesus operated his ministry, he sent out 70 disciples. He said, Heal, deliver, cast out devils, etc. Don't go to two places. Don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. Why? Because they're an uncovenant people. They're unrepented, they're uncovenant. They do not need, they do not receive the favor of God for these miracles. When Jesus operates in healing in the New Testament, only twice will you find him giving miracles outside the children of Israel. Only twice. And in both of them times, he's blown away by their great faith. The centurion, I'm not seeing this kind of faith in all of Israel. And the Syrophoenician woman. Great faith can operate outside of covenant. Great faith is so powerful, it can operate outside of covenant. You don't have to be a child to receive if you've got great faith. And we see it demonstrated in our world today. Don't be confused and think that these people have truth. They're operating in great faith. That operates outside of covenant. But look at what Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman when she says, I need a miracle for my daughter. And Jesus said, it's not meat to give bread that's meant for the children to the dogs. He's not calling her a dog, but he's speaking of her dog-like nation. You're a Gentile woman and you're uncovenant and you're just like a dog that goes back to its vomit, the Bible says, like the Gentiles, they partake of their sin and they go back to it again unrepented, and back to it again unrepented. He said, you have no right for what's meant for the children because you're of a dog-like nation. She said, true, but even... Dogs get the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And because of great faith, she received a miracle. But I want you to see what Jesus is saying about his children around the table. That what the healings and miracles that he's talking about is daily bread for his children. If if you are a covenant child of God, you have legal right to the daily bread of healing. Now, qualification if you're also a disciple of Christ, you have a legal right to pick up your cross, follow him. If you're called and chosen, you have a legal right for the power of his resurrection, also a legal right for the fellowship of his suffering. The Lowest common denominator, a legal right for healing. I want you to stand with me. So in this courtroom today, there's some questions that have to be exacted because... No one here is a non-participant. If you choose to say nothing and walk out, it's because you have not testified. And therefore, condemnation will be brought to you by yourself because of your lack of testimony. That's, That's the word of God. And everything that the enemy says will still be pressed and heaped upon you because there's no testimony. But if you're here today and you can truly Be an eyewitness. Look in your heart. What do you believe? What what do you believe? Do you really believe? I don't deserve it, but he loves me. He's been saying that in this service with tongues interpretation. He's been speaking that to us with the worship songs that we've sung. He, He loves me. Therefore, I believe. He so loved me. He went to a cross so that I could repent. That's his words. Be baptized in his name. That's his words that you can't separate from him. And receive his spirit, evidenced by speaking in tongues. Live a holy and separated life before him. If you believe that, then you can come take your stand for a witness today. When I give an altar call, I'm not going to ask you to speak in this microphone or speak out loud to people. But your open confession to God will have legal ramifications on your soul, your spirit. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Can't separate Him from His Word, so believe His Word and make that confession. And if you do that today, you have a legal right to this journey of salvation. And if you're a child of covenant and you have the same ability to look in your heart and to testify what what you witness, what do you see? And as a true witness, you can say, I'm his child. I'm not perfect, but I'm his child. He's given me his spirit. He's washed me with his blood. I have a legal right to healing, and you come down and testify that I believe your report. You paid the price for my healing. I'm here to receive it, and because I'm confessing I'm your child and you're giving me this gift, I have a legal right to healing. Whose report will you believe? if you need God to touch you in your salvation journey wherever that is whether you have repented or not repented received the Holy Ghost or not received the Holy Ghost but today you need the help of God in your salvation journey I'm going to ask you to operate in faith, you know what faith is Hebrew says it this way now faith is the substance of things hoped for thee it's evidence in court The evidence that you have looked into your heart and you are eyewitnessing what you believe is by you stepping out. Your faith causes you to step out and walk down to the front. That's faith in this courtroom. Now, as those that are coming for help in their salvation journey, I'm also gonna make a strong invitation for those that need a miracle. If you're a child of the covenant here today and you need a miracle in your physical body, then I want you to come down and make your confession. You've got to open your mouth and before heaven, confess what you believe. And when you confess what you believe, it becomes legally binding if you're a true eyewitness of what you're believing. Would you come down right now? Lift up your hands. I want to pray for you right before we turn the music loose. Lift up your hands. I'm going to pray for you. (laughs) God, let a revelation that you have come not to condemn us, but to save us, be upon us. Let us have this understanding that if we have made mistakes, we have we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That you're not doing this illegally or unrighteous; you're doing this legally. That we can join our hearts with yours, confess our belief, and the salvation would be upon us today. I pray for faith to confess what we believe. I I pray for faith for us to look into our heart and be true eyewitnesses and make that confession even now. By the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the authority of the word of God. If you need a miracle or you need help in your salvation journey, keep up your hands. I'm going to ask the ministry to begin to find people in the altar and to pray for them. I'm going to get in this altar and pray for them. There's healings that are going to happen in this altar. You confess what you truly believe, and we'll pray the word of faith and miracles and healings and salvation is in this place. Let your hands high. If there's an intercessor in the place, go ahead and intercede and let the Holy Ghost begin to use you. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast.